Hi, everyone, and welcome to Out of the Gray, a podcast by Standard Imaging. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a like, and share with your friends, family, and colleagues to help these messages continue their reach. Without any further delay, let's jump into this latest conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Out of the Gray, the podcast where we discuss all things radiation oncology and medical physics. Today, special guest, Dr. Rob Krauss, DMP, uh, with me to discuss the, the recent release of MPPG eight, I believe. Uh, Dr. Cross, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm very well. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I know you're uh, double duty today in the clinic and, and also guesting on a podcast. I, I can't imagine all the all the different things flying around your office at the moment, but I certainly appreciate you taking time to, to share some important updates about this recent release. Well, I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited about this. We spent over two years working on it, um, trying to get it so that uh, we can, uh, you know, make everyone happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's a great tool and I'm, I'm so looking forward to learning more about it. I know you had the opportunity to, to join us at AAPM live from the booth there. We, we got a sneak peek of what will be coming in the future. So for our listeners, go back if you haven't into our archives of, of out of the gray and you'll find, uh, Rob's interview there from the from the booth at AAPM. Um, but we, what we didn't get a chance to do there is is get to know you uh, a little bit better. So I'd like to take the opportunity to do that now if we can. Um, how did you find your way into medical physics? Um, so I always loved math, always loved the sciences. Um, and so when I was in high school, I did all the AP courses. I was actually got a higher score in the chemistry AP test than I did in the physics AP test, which I always find amusing. Um, but uh, I knew I wanted to do something with physics um, and actually was, I guess, self-aware enough at the time to know that I didn't really want to sit in a lab. Um, and so I was just kind of exploring my options, had no idea what really medical physics was until my mother, who happened to be at the time director of education at the hospital down in Naples, Florida. Um, because she was director of education, she basically knew everyone that walked through the facility doors um, because they all had to go through her programs. And so she knew the uh, the physicist there. Um, uh, it was actually uh, Mary Ellen Masterson, um, who um, actually um, is served um our our profession um well over the years been on many committees i think she was uh, president of the um acmp at one point um forgive me if i'm wrong there but i'm pretty sure that's correct um and um she was the physicist there and basically i shadowed her through my mom who knew that you know she got wind that you know i liked physics and so she had my mom you know put me in touch with her i shadowed her for a little while and then through college it ended up being a part-time job when I was off on um, break and it was, I was actually um, in in retrospect I was a medical physics assistant before medical physics assistants existed I would do a lot of QA um, and I would actually train the therapist on CyberKnife before they began um, uh, treating I would kind of give them the rundown of the of the systems and the processes and everything like that and so I kind of set the ball rolling about where I was heading. And so I kind of knew that that's where I was, what I was going to do. Um, 
my junior year of college, I purposefully did my undergrad research in something other than therapy, medical physics. I did um, translational imaging with MRI at St. Jude here in Memphis. And um, I was literally in a office in a basement and basically learned that um, if I wanted to do research, MRI is awesome and it's amazing. And that's where ton of awesome research is happening right now but also that I didn't want to do the research because I was stuck in a basement and um so that was just kind of confirmation and um applied to the the DMP or actually at the time was just a master's program at Vanderbilt and it was kind of converted right in the middle of the process of becoming the first DMP program in the world and um was part of that Uh, me and my um my friends um Travis Denton and Jared Newton um were the first three DMPs in the world um and uh you know that's kind of how I that's kind of my path to this profession you you literally grew up in it it sounds I mean in in some ways um yeah uh, I mean I I didn't really know about it until probably my junior year of of high school but unlike I mean I mean, that's pretty early for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, that's really have family early. members that are already doing it. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. What what an interesting tra- trajectory. And, and one of the first three DMPs in the world. That's that's an honor there. Congratulations to you and your your cohorts there. Yeah, it's a, a it's an honor. Um it's you know, at the time was also slightly terrifying. So was it? But um, you know, it's we've really the profession doesn't treat us any differently than anybody else so um that's all you can ask for sure ah well what a fabulous fabulous addition to our field we're, we're grateful that you're that you're here and and we're and, and working ever still on pushing the boundaries and and launching our field forward even further um which is the subject of today's of today's uh interview our podcast here is the recent release of of the mppg um for our listeners who may not have any experience with what the MPPG is and does, can you give us a rundown of, of what these documents look like, uh, how they function, what they are? Yeah. So um, for those of you who have been in the field for quite some time there, we know that the accrediting bodies and states that have um, more stricter um, rules about our profession know that, even though the APM has been very careful in their task group reports about putting this is not intended to be uh, a regulation, um, that it's they've become regulation in some states. So it really um, was born out of the idea to provide something that is a, a somewhat a living document, as in they're, they're updated or supposed to be updated every five years if necessary, um, such that regulators and um, accrediting bodies can use the MPPGs instead of task groups such that it really does show what is the minimum guidelines to provide quality care to the patients Um, and then they're updated so whereas if the state says task group you know x y and z well you know five years down the road or even a year in some cases task group x might be updated to task group a and now you now you're in a pickle because you're the the new document says one thing but the state says another thing 
Whereas MPPGs, since they're updated, um, you can just say MPPG A, and it doesn't matter, you know, whatever the most current MPP version of that, whether it's A, B, C, D, um, you know, it just kind of updates on its own. Hmm. So that's where it kind of started. Um, and that still is a big purpose for them. But they also serve as um, really just a, um, you know, a floor of what quality care is. Now, I would stress that you shouldn't just use these documents blindly because, again, they're supposed to be a floor. Um, and for example, in 8B, we actually specifically mentioned that um, because our document is supposed to be, um, you know, encompass multiple C-ARM Linux from different vendors, there are still some Siemens machines out there. Um, and there, there's older C-series variant out there, electas are supposed to encompass, encompass them all. We make a note that most in, in certain certain cases and certain tests in the document, we make a note that you know most machines can you know perform much better. Um, and we actually um, emphasize using um, both um, action limits, which are kind of hard constraints that we put in there as the minimum guidelines, but also adding tolerances that, that are kind of the normal operating range of your equipment, which should be much tighter than the action limits themselves. Um, so I want to emphasize that you shouldn't use these blindly and that in general, um, the criteria should be stricter than these these guidelines, but they do serve as kind of um, a, uh, they serve as about the closest thing as the APM, APM is ever going to get to is what is the, what is the, you know, what is the minimum that needs to be done for this machine? Um, and, you know, with the emphasis on you know, TG100 with um, FMEA and other forms of you know, perspective um, fault and uh, um, failure analyses, um, it basically serves that MPPGs can serve as almost a sanity check. Because if you go through a full FMEA process and your testing comes out, something is less strict or you know less frequent than the MPPGs, you can then say, well, maybe my process that I use for my FMEA, there maybe there's an error in it some way or a flaw in the rationale. Um, so they've kind of evolved into that. Um, but the original the original idea of them being a a work for accrediting and regulatory bodies to use is still intact. And in fact, Many of the accrediting bodies are starting to use the MPPGs in their documentation um, alongside the TGs. Interesting. So, not a replacement for the TGs, not a not a new guide, not necessarily like a, a new guideline to be followed exclusively, but alongside what's what's already very well established in the TGs. Yes, and so that's we take a. a take a lot of the TGs is really the starting place for the MPPGs when we're writing or updating them and, you know, among and with much of the other supporting documentation mm -hmm. in the literature. Um, and there's been actually attempts to do them in parallel where the, the TGs pulling in the science and the MPPG is coming up with what is the minimum guidelines from the science. It's still an evolving process. Um, there, you know, there's, pitfalls and doing that that way and there's other you know 
know, things. So we're it's still it's a, it's evolving in the best way to accomplish. Um, you know, there's been some MPPG proposals, but there hasn't been an update in the actual body of science in a recent time. So is it better to do an MPPG or is it better to do a TG? And you know, that that's a that's an interesting discussion that there's not necessarily a right answer to. Mm -hmm. Interesting. The yeah. MPPG from the from the um, onset has been a five-year renewal. Five years, um, okay. Which has been um, closer to six, <laughs> to be honest. Okay. Um, it's in a very, very aggressive um, process because the, the, the groups are formed basically just before a year before the renewals um, up. And you have that time frame combined with the fact that um, there is a huge shortage of physicists right now. So basically everyone's overworked, but it makes, mm -hmm. makes that time frame quite a bit um, ambitious. Um, our, in our particular case, we were, we probably were, we were, we were behind by likely just a few months. Mm -hmm. Um but it ended up being um, significantly more because we paused. Um, I think I mentioned this um, back in uh, the summer. We paused because the um, there's the uh, special virtual meeting on IMRTQA, and, and we wanted to be able to incorporate some of the findings there into our document at a very basic level. Mm. Um, we're, we're in a paradigm shift right now in the field where more and more data is coming out that IMRTQA, well, it's certainly can find errors. I have personally found errors through IMRTQA, um, but it is not sensitive enough to detect enough of the, um, non-trivial errors that can occur. And so the field is shifting to where we do more robust MLC QA in combined with um, a full 3D secondary dose calculations. But we don't know exactly how to do that yet. There's, there hasn't become a consensus on the topic. And so given our document does have an MLC section mm -hmm. or there are a few tests regarding MLCs um, and it was about to be published, we thought that it would be worth um, looking at it and seeing how we can address it and without a really consensus that we were limited. We decided that we were pretty limited. Mm -hmm. We didn't have just a a, a um, large body of data that says, hey, do X, Y, and Z. But we did want to do something to kind of get the ball rolling. So we paused and we added a few things and we adjusted a few things in the document and that kind of put us behind. So those are the kind of things that can happen in that in that. Um, um, update timeframe where you have just the fact that it's already aggressive timeframe. And if you have something that popped up like that, you don't want to just, you know, forge ahead. And then your document is already, already needs to be updated as soon as it's published. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. It's, I suppose it is quite the aggressive timeframe considering all the constraints that are already placed on the time, on the time available of the team. There's quite a bit going on and, Technology is marching forward uh, exponentially. So having updates as soon as the documents released would be would be a frustrating thing. So it's it's nice that they're op the option to kind of pause and add 
things as needed is is available. Yes, and you know, part of it is you know that that kind of happens on you know behind closed doors, quote unquote. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really behind closed doors, but, but people don't realize that the number of reviews that it goes through before it actually makes it to the publication. Mm-hmm. And so, not only do you have to get a document done, but you have to submit it to multiple committees um, to get them to get the, the experts, um, um, you know, other experts in to look at it and say, Hey, did we do something stupid? <laughs> did we, mm-hmm. Is there something that is gonna, you know, that we hadn't thought of? Um, and then once it goes through a few rounds of review there and we, and we make corrections and we have to, the, there are different levels of, um, of comments and, um, we address them all. Like we write a comment on them all. We either make a change or we explain why we didn't make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, those can be hundreds of comments long. And then even after that process, um, the documents go to um, public comment. Um, And I want to emphasize this, is that the public comments are so important and they are used 100%. We made several changes based on public comment where the membership of the AAPM um, had made made some suggestions. And again, we go through everyone. I think there was was a few hundred of them, I think. we went through every single one, answered every single one, and through that process, there were a, a notable number of changes and small tweaks we made. Um, there were some really good suggestions in there. Some of them are as simple as just grammar. Um, some of them are simple as um, you know you might you might be a little bit too um, broad or too narrow on this. Maybe it's, you know use this other term, um, and we made those changes. So I want to emphasize that. These aren't made in a vacuum. These these updates aren't made in a vacuum. Yes, where the committee is, the writing committee is allegedly the experts, mm-hmm. but um, we're fallible and we're just a few people. So, um, you know, that's why we go through these review processes and they we the documents go through some significant changes based on the comments. Well, that's certainly good to know. Uh, so internal, as we kind of give a broad overview of the process, the construction process, from the the, the skeletal initial beginnings of, of a new MPPG all the way through uh, to the internal reviews, repeated internal reviews, and then on to a public forum where where I'm assuming it's members of the AAPM that can then yes. uh, comment? Okay. Yeah, and if your email is correct, you get most of the membership should get a um, uh, an email from APM um, asking for public review, and it's usually a few weeks to get those in. Okay, so a few weeks to provide um, feedback, and uh, for our listeners who are maybe uh, have have received these emails or maybe not, um, these MPPG review boards can be found on the APM website. Um, you know that's a good question. I mm-hmm. think there and there's um. Uh, there is a notification on the on the um, homepage mm-hmm. of that there are documents to review, um, um, but honestly, um, I have always gone off the email, so I, I I can't actually answer that right now, to be honest. Well, we'll look for it, and if if it's available, check the description box of this of this uh, podcast episode, and we'll find so, uh, maybe a link to the page where it can be found. Um, but uh, I'm I'm curious when it comes to the the public review process, are the comments, uh, the review, the pieces of, of feedback, are they viewable by the public as well, or are the 
are the feedback bits anonymous? Um, so that's actually something that's being looked at mm -hmm. um, because right now they're they're not viewable. We they send them they send them in and then they're collated and then the authors get them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is to um, provide some anonymity mm -hmm. um, to the commenters. Um, I the authors do see the names, but I think that you know you don't you know you're narrowing it down to just a few people whereas if everyone could see the comments on them um you know there might there may be some issues there um but um it has it is being looked at to possibly be able to send comments for um for each commenter that you know you may be able to send your responses back so because i think that that would you know kind of uh, emphasize that they are looked at yeah um, but, um, there's, there's a, you know, that's a, there's a lot of little caveats and little nuances to that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's been discussed, but I don't know how in detail and it, it, it's a, it'd be a large, there'd be a lot of people that would have to sign off on that to, to make that happen. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's interesting. So, so changes being made even to the process as we speak. So it's still being, you know, growing and developing and, and shifting. Yes. Things. And it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of streamlining trying to ha happen, um, in the process. A lot of it already has happened. Um, there are other MPPGs that were, um, there were new ones. So there's a little, little bit different, but they started well before we did. And they were published around the same time because there were some streamlining processes that we, learned um you know i for those of you you don't know the um medical physics and, and j camp have have um recently changed publishers to wiley just a couple years ago um and through that some of the processes changed and then recently um the process has changed again um to try to just streamline some things and to make it um easier um, and more efficient. Um, a lot of the reviews that were done sequentially before are done in parallel now so that you get comments at the same time. So you're not, you know, you're not having to wait um, as long. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's, it's all in flux as we try to um, optimize the process. Let's step away for a moment to hear from our sponsor, Standard Imaging. With more than 30 years of dedication to good physics, Standard Imaging offers world-class QA solutions, unbeatable implementation support, and customer-centric development practices to ensure your priorities drive our ambitions. Stay up to date with the latest in news and releases by following Standard Imaging on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and of course, our regularly updated website, standardimaging.com, where you'll find information about our portfolio of QA solutions, access customer care, or contact your regional account manager. We look forward to working with you and your team very soon. Let's step back into today's podcast. It's an interesting thing to look at from the 30,000 foot view, kind of this, this really, I really appreciate the overview of the process and, and, and um, even the insights into the changes as kind of live as they're happening. There's, there's things being shifted around. It's, I really appreciate your, your insights on this. Yeah, it's, um, it, I think it helps. Um, I think it helps the, uh, the membership to understand that, you know, it's not just a bunch of people. Um, doing things just to do them that we're constantly thinking about it and you know the other thing is to get involved um it's it's actually um that's how i i just got involved by being annoying um one of the one of the co-authors um karen smith um she uh she was a the um 
chair of the original document and I was just annoying. Um, I, I said, I like the document and then, you know, um, ask questions and, um, ended up giving a talk on it and, you know, she asked if I wanted to be involved and, and, and the, in the, uh, in the update and, um, then all of a sudden I'm leading things. So, um, and that was just, um, from just, you know, being around basically and being persistent and saying, being interested and, um, and that's what we need more people to do, especially young people. Um, there, we need a lot of young people involved, um, because the profession is growing. Um, the amount of technology that, that falls under our purview is growing. So there's more committees, there's more people on the committees, there's more papers to write. And also, you know, again, given the fact that there's a shortage of physicists right now, um, so there's that means there's also a shortage of time for the people that already are working in APM on different things. So the more people we have, the more we can spread that out. Mm -hmm. um, and so most of the committee meetings on it for APM are are open for to the membership. Um, there's only a few that aren't. Um, and and but you you can just hop on the website find something you like and join the join the meeting because all that's public um and say that uh, it is courteous to let the chair know that you you know that you plan on attending or asking if you can attend but you know usually the chairs are like please come help mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah yeah all hands on deck anybody that uh, is interested or or you know has a has an interest in participating and in some of these things, um, org, right? Is that fine? That's right. And, um, there's, uh, there's, there's committee classifieds, um, for actual member roles, um, right on your homepage. Um, and those are, that's the primary way to actually get officially involved, whereas you're a member of the committee, but it's also a great way to look at, to see, Hey, what committees are, what are the committees doing? What committees are there? And even if you're not, don't know if you want to be a member or even if you apply and you, and you aren't selected, um, you can go to the chair and say, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to still be involved and come to meetings and, and, uh, see what's going on. Um, um, and that's still a good way to get involved because you can still know what's going on and you can participate too. These are not, I mean, well, yes, they're formal committees. I mean, they're not held. Most of them aren't held like where, you know, only X number of people can talk or anything like that. If you have input, you can just ask, hey, can I say something? And most people are going to be like, yeah, sure. Right. Well, that's fabulous to know. And it's, it can be intimidating sometimes to uh, walk into, you know, to to uh, speak up and, and participate in things. But at the same time, having a front row seat to the process and a hand in the creation of some of these documents that, that are, it, it can be really probably a, a pretty amazing thing to watch. It is. Um, and just um, being involved um, and just seeing how the process goes um, can give a lot of confidence to, um, to, to get involved, involved officially, even if you're just observing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly appreciate that. And we'll add, uh, we'll always have links in the descriptions there to the, to things where, where uh, maybe folks can find some more information on how to participate and how to get involved um, with, with the actual process of helping with some of these things. Um, as, as we kind of look towards the recent release, this MPPG 8B, is that, 
I'm correct there? That is correct, yes. What, can you give me a, a little overview of what this particular update entailed? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so 8A came out in, um, oh man, um, well, I'm going to actually, I think it was 2018. I'm going to look at the, uh, at the references because um, I don't want to lie. Um, uh, 2017. Okay. So it's, yeah, six years ago. Um, about six and a half, I believe. I think it was in the middle of the year. Um, and, um, they, they kind of had, they had a Herculean task because it was, if you follow the trajectory of, of like Linux, um, QA, basically you go from port 13 that was developed in the early 80s you had tg40 which it was like an all-encompassing report on lnac qa and just the clinic as a whole and then you had the um the infamous or famous depending on your view of tg142 which i remember that i mean i remember when that came out i was in graduate school and there was all kinds of um complaining gnashing of teeth and saying this is way too much for for the regular clinic and you know and again it's not intended to be like here this is this is the bible you need to do everything in here exactly as we say but that's mm -hmm. what it ended up being because a lot of regulatory bodies took it um and the um you know the different accrediting bodies did the same thing and so uh 8a had to strike a balance um to you know, one of the kind of the most broad encompassing topic on the therapy side of medical physics with Linux QA. And they had to, you know, figure out how do we take TG142 and how do we and and the other documents that come out since then. And how do we take that and you know find out what is the minimum um the, the minimum guidelines um for Linux QA. And so they took a kind of novel approach where they did um they did kind of a TG100 FMEA type approach. And they took 25 different physicists and they had them score um you know their different using the tests from TG142 scored them through FMEA and that was formed the basis of how they came up with their guidelines with some tweaking based on their own experience and stuff like that, which I thought was um, at the time was a pretty, um, pretty great approach because it tried to incorporate TG100, um, where and one of the biggest complaints about TG100 was that, you know, solo physicists aren't going to have time to do this. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what I heard that frequently. And this kind of sort of did it for you. Um, and I and I I want to stop there is that that's not what they did. They did not do TG one hundred for any particular clinic. They just used it as a tool to try to assess what would be the minimum guidelines. Um, and so once they you know came out with a document with using that as the, the, the formation of their tests, um, you know it kind of got to sit and percolate for you know, several years as people kind of saw this, and I, I thought it was a great document because I think I thought it was kind of answered a lot of the cries from physicists in, in the world that said TG142, so much of it is excessive for what we do in our clinic. And MPPG8A, I thought kind of was more of a sanity check on things like, hey, um, 
you know, here are the minimum guidelines and you build based off of that. Um, and so what we did is, you know, Linux technology itself has not changed that much in those six years. So our goal was to look at every single test in TG142 and decide whether um, anything had changed enough in the field um, that it would have changed what 8A came up with. So we did that for all the tests. We went through every single one and we discussed, you know, if anything had changed, if, if you know, if technology had changed to make, make something different than what 8 had done. And then we came up with our bodies of tests. And then from that also, we came up with, you know, is the technology change where this top, this uh, action limit could be different. Um, and then after that, we looked at, okay, what technology has changed or you know, what procedures are we doing more of um, that 8A would not have considered or didn't have enough information to really consider appropriately. And so we went through that and we came up with a few little things that we added um, in the testing portion. Um, but one of some of the biggest things that we did is that we tried to explain better the rationale between from 8A's original testing. Um, so we were a little bit more verbose in um, the explanations of the tests. Um, we also did something where we really wanted to emphasize what 8A started with um, um, what, and this is this might get into a can of worms here, but um, the idea of what a baseline is. Um, so traditionally, a baseline is kind of you measure something and that's your standard. That's what you compare to go, moving on. And traditionally, the baseline in medical physics has been your commissioning data for a LINAC. But, you know, commissioning data was back when you would do hand calculations for MUs. Um, that was great because if you're comparing commissioning data to commissioning data, you're comparing your, your, you know, QA data to your commissioning data, where well, you're comparing your what you're measuring on your QA to what you're actually using to calculate your dose and your monitor units. But now we don't use commissioning data to calculate monitor units. We use the dose algorithms in the treatment planning system. So it 8A and a couple other documents introduced the, the idea that, well, we really should be comparing our QA data that we take to the treatment planning system, since that's actually what we're using to calculate our MUs. Um, and 8A did a good job of introducing that. And, um, but we felt that from just experience that we really needed to emphasize that, especially in, in um, concert with MPPG-5, who, uh, which is the um, MPPG on commissioning and quality assurance on treatment planning systems for uh, external beam. Mm -hmm. And um, where they talk about how close your modeling data should be to your commissioning data, well then by extension, your quality assurance data should then reflect on your treatment planning system. So treatment planning system is what is actually used to calculate your monitor units, what the position looks like, to check plans. And so we went and we decided that, okay, baseline, um, is a 
it's really associated with measurement, right? You, you, if you take a device and you measure something and that's what your standard is, and that's the baseline for that, that measured information. But since the treatment planning system isn't actually measuring anything, we decided that we would kind of break with the idea of baselines and we would call the um, treatment planning system your primary reference data set. And then once you do that, it's not really practical to compare every little, like your daily QA system, it's not practical to compare that directly to treatment planning system because that's just, it's your, you might measure one or two points on your daily QA device. So it's not really practical. So you have to have a secondary reference that is tied to your primary reference. And so that's where the we have a device baseline or secondary reference data set would be your actual device um, uh, measurement that corresponds to your, your TPS. So the idea is that during your annual, well, I guess actually during your commissioning process, you make sure you use MPPG5 to make sure that your, your, your dose calculation models are, you know, match your beam data. And then when you come around the next year, when you do your annual QA, um, you would then check to make sure that your scans match your treatment planning system calculated um, dose from your treatment planning models. And then when you um, take your measurements for your monthly and your daily um, device or um, you know method, whatever you're having to do, then you are in essence saying that, okay, I know my deviation from my, from my annual scans to my treatment planning system. And then when I measure on my monthly device or my monthly system, and I measure on my daily system, then that corresponds to the same difference between my annual scans and my primary reference data. And so then those on the monthly and the daily devices, those become your secondary reference data sets or your device baselines. And that was a, we expanded that section significantly to kind of really hammer home the point that when you are measuring anything with the beam data, ultimately we wanna match the um, planning system. You know, to be, to, to, to give an absurd example, if you took your commissioning data and your, your calculation models were way off for some reason. You didn't follow MPPG five, so your models are way off. And then, by some miracle, you actually measure your data on the machine, and they ha it happens to match the treatment planning system. That's that means that you're actually delivering the correct patient, correct correct um, dose, even though your treatment planning system doesn't actually match your original commissioning data. Something in your machine changed, and they happen to match. Um, you know, that's obviously an absurd example because obviously something's very, something happened very wrong. But the point is that if you had been compared to the commissioning data, you, it would have been way off, even though your treatment planning system was actually predicting the right dose that you were delivering. Um, so anyway, that was a, that was a big thing that we really emphasized on. And then, you know, we added and expounded on some sections and, you know, different things, um, we were more explicit about allowing um, arrays to be used in different points of um, the uh, um, testing process and actually gave a list of available arrays 
um, just so, you know, people know it's out there. Um, mm -hmm. So we've got, um, you know, we've got uh, different vendors on here about what they have available and what kind of array it is and, you know, little tidbits about them. And so little things that we, you know, try to be helpful to the physicists. And then um, I guess one of the other big things that we introduced in this um, document um, is a annual end-to-end -end test, which has never, to my knowledge and to really people on the committees has, in a general Lunette key way, has never really been explicitly um, included. Um, it it kind of is a little bit beyond just Lunette key way because it includes your processes too and treatment planning system key way and whatnot. But you know, we felt that especially with the MLC and patient-specific QA paradigm shift that it was important to include. Um, and since also it does include a big portion of, of Linux QA too, I mean, you're into that's not going to pass if you have a, you know, terrible QA in your Linux. But the point being is that it's a holistic test to test the, your entire process and to do it annually. And there's some basic instructions on how to do that. Um, um, and then the other one is, again, like I mentioned earlier, we um, added a little section about including tolerances and action limits. Um, APM has um, for a long time used the concept of tolerance as, uh, you know, what, you know, if it's two millimeters and that's the tolerance. Um, but recently, a few of the APM documents and the, um, and in Canada, um, They've switched to action limits, where that's basically your red flag, um, your hard limit, and then tolerances, your kind of soft limit, where you would set tolerances based on um, either best principles or that's like your normal operating range of a machine. Mm -hmm. For example, um, you know, for many of the softwares out there, you'll have a yellow and a red section. If you're doing, you know, your morning QA and they take an output and they get something in the yellow range, well, that's a kind of like uh, check check with me later. But you know, you don't have to stop treating. But that's outside of our normal range. So let's figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and the red is, hey, stop, don't treat. Um, so that um that's another section that we added just to kind of fall in line with our canadian counterparts and also just for good practice because again this is not meant to be okay here's mpbgab this is what we're going to do and that's it no this is your minimum so everyone should have those are your action limits those are your where you should stop things where we should have tolerances where this is how it normally operates the QMP is responsible for overseeing the development of comprehensive QA program for their equipment, considering the specific modalities, types of treatments, diversity of patients, and the type of frequency of patient alignment used in their clinic. Ultimately, this guideline provides guidelines. Oh, I hate that wording. I should have changed that. <laughs> Ultimately, this guideline provides guidelines the QMP must use in selecting the tests and action limits used for their, for their linear accelerators. A more rigorous program will likely be developed if risk analysis techniques are employed as suggested in section 5.3 and CG100, but even after performing robust FMEA, the guidelines presented here serve as the floor for the acceptable level of QA to ensure safe and quality, high quality radiation treatments. That's going to, that's going to bother me now. I said guidelines provide guidelines. I'm, that's going to really bother me. And more edits to come, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, 
the, the process continues live live on podcast yeah uh, but but beautifully stated all in all I, f- I feel like it's um it would provide the end user a, a very a, a very nice guideline there um by which to to uh, fill in their QA their QA protocol yeah it's it's basically you know e- ultimately in a perfect world every clinic does does tg100 fmea you do it you come up with your qa program you look Mm -hmm. at mpbg 8b you see you compare what you came up with using fmea you look at okay what are the minimum guidelines um okay i you know some this is a little bit close or it's actually looser than what mpbg 8b suggests and then you just can reassess your your process um, and adjust um, kind of serves as a sanity check or mm-hmm. for the clinics that have not been able to do um, FMEA yet. Um, it just also serves as kind of the, you know, again, the action limits. So, you know, a, a reasonable physicist that just has, you know, experience with their equipment knows that, you know, for uh, output on a day-to-day basis, their machine should be able to get better than 3%. That's, that's our action limit because, there are a wide variety of uh, machines um, set up. Your setup's a little, usually a little bit sloppier on, on daily on QA. Not um, that's not supposed to be. Um, um, I'm not saying that because you know therapists are you know just slinging the devices on there, but it's usually sure. with less precise equipment. You're using the ODI light, and um, you know there's a little bit more time constraint, um, and so you give a little bit more leeway, but. Even so, you still should be significantly better than three percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that even if I don't do FMEA, I know that a really my machine should be between one or one and a half percent daily, and so then I would set a I would set a more strict um, tolerance level in there, and you know, and then probably even a tighter action. Limit. I think actually um, I do have a tighter action limit. My action limit is two percent. Where if my therapist um, measure in the morning and I just look on the QA and it's more than 2% or actually they can see it, then they're, they know not to treat. And, um, so that's just kind of a basic idea. Even without FMEA, um, you should have tighter tolerances or tighter, let me, sorry, tighter tolerances and tighter action limits. Hmm. Um, old habits die hard as we've been talking about tolerances for, you know, decades and now we're switching to action limits. Sure. Sure. I I certainly appreciate the the advice there to the listeners on on tightening tolerances and and kind of giving an example of of something that your clinic uh, a procedure that your clinic follows. It's um it's it can be very helpful for our listeners to have those little tidbits of advice there. Yeah, that's another thing I would point out is on any of these documents um, in either medical physics or or, or general applied um, clinical medical physics, physics, as we like to call J-Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, the authors, there's always a corresponding author and if and also the author list and you can use the member directory. Just if you have a question or you, you want a, uh, information, just email them. Um, that's, that's how I, that's how I got into, going back to my, how I got involved in this. I just used a corresponding author email and emailed the question. And that's how it started the conversation about the document itself and how I started being annoying and kind of just hanging around and got involved. Um, but I mean, she emailed me back of, you know, answered the question and added a couple other tidbits and, you know, I've done that for other 
other documents. And, um, you know, since medical physicists are, we're, we're part scientists, part um, technician, part, you know, IS, part, part patient <laughs> we care do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, you kind of forget that in since the, the sciencey part where, you know, the, the corresponding um, author's contact information is there for a reason. So use it. I think that's sound advice. I, I, I truly do. Um, and then that was actually uh, a really great. That the next question I was going to ask you is how to, how to get in touch with folks for our listeners. If in the event that they have questions about MPPG 8B or, or questions about any of the TGs, MPPGs, uh, how to reach out. And so great advice there um, as, as folks kind of uh, look to, fill in their own QA practices or, or help their clinics grow into these, these next decades ahead of, of how the, the field is changing. Yeah. And I mean, it's even changing. I mean, just, I mean, the, the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you about it, that's one way it's changed. You know, that's not something that we had, you know, just a few years ago. I mean, there weren't really many wide reaching podcasts on, on, uh, you know, medical physics and radiation oncology. Um, similarly, um, APM has been pretty active recently on, um, Twitter, Twitter X, X, whatever you want to call it these days, right. of, um, promoting, um, new documents. So they're TGs or even other things that aren't even TGs that are just, you know, papers that they've been promoting, um, on social media. Um, so that's kind of a, um, a modern quote unquote way to keep up with some of the things, um, the people, in our field, um, post about things on on LinkedIn a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways that you can keep up with, not just keep up with these, but kind of interact with the people and you know bounce ideas off of the people that are publishing or involved in these projects. Um, and yeah. kind of um, related, um, there's a lot of uh, philanthropy too happening in our field that. Um, you can get involved with in the same way where, you know, right next to where someone's promoting the, the new paper, there's someone, you know, promoting a, uh, a project to raise money for, for a Linac, you know, for in a country that doesn't have a lot of Linac. So it's, it's kind of cool that way too. Yeah. The social media and the internet have changed the way our field communicate with one another, especially in the past few years, I've seen a major spike in, in the open forum communication of, X, formerly Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Reddit. There's there's all kinds of places where I find medical physicists and and other members of our field, RedOncs, uh, RTTs, CMDs, kind of communicating and reaching out to share messages and thoughts back and forth. It's it's intriguing. Really been something to be fun to be a part of. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a as as much as you know, some of us, including myself, think that social media is. Um, you know, hurts hurts sure. society. There's a lot of ways that it has really improved the way that we can, um, you know, facilitate the transfer of information. That's absolutely true. Yeah, there's there's ups and downs. There's good sides, and then you know, there's there's the negative too. But um, Dr. Krause, thank you again. I, I I certainly I know I've taken up a bunch of your of your morning slash afternoon here. I certainly appreciate you being willing to do this and come in here and and share and provide these these insights into um, not only your personal experiences in medical physics, but the experience of being a part of uh, the the recent publication of MPPG eight B. Thank you. Oh, no, no problem. I, I, I think, you know, the, the document is, is there for people to read. Um, and uh, it's 
but I think in a lot of ways it's important um, to kind of explain how it came, how it came came about, so people kind of understand where where it's coming from, and um, that they are part of the process because mem like every APM member has the opportunity to put their stamp on it um, by the, either being involved or or the comments, um, and so um, yeah. Yeah, and it's always it's always so good to be in you know be involved, be there, uh, kind of on the front lines and and help push things along, right? At the very at the if if you if you're interested in doing so or or providing a little feedback uh, for those who are working diligently to do so is is also a massive help, I'm sure. Oh, definitely. I mean, every every clinic um, through the country through the world is different, and so everyone has a different perspective, and that that means if everyone has a different perspective, that means that everyone has something to add to documents like this. Yes, nothing nothing too small, I'm sure. To that again, uh, Dr. Cross, I thank you so much for taking time to join us and my listeners here out of the gray um, to share these insights, and I know that uh, if, if there's any folks listening, check the description box and you'll find a lot of information on how to reach out um, and ask questions or find information about becoming involved yourself. Um, again, Dr. Krause, thank you so much for taking time to join us. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you, Tracy. Absolutely. Folks, if you've been hanging out with us, you're still hanging out with us. We've had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rob Krause, DMP, uh, one of the authors of the MPPG 8B, uh, sharing about its recent release and some insights into what that process looks like. Uh, as a reminder, uh, check out the description box for some additional information on how to ask questions or become involved yourself in working with the WPM and some of these, uh, some of these projects. We have had a blast having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day.